That's the sound of the coffee pouring. Welcome to the Doctor's Brew. I'm your host, Dr. Abdelaziz Al-Khayyab, and having coffee with us today is Dr. Mohammed Al-Banna. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's an honor to have you here in the studio. Now, with us today is uh, a Renaissance man, or should I say a Renaissance doctor. For those of you who don't know, the idea of the Renaissance man came about in uh, Europe during the Renaissance period, and it was embodied by people like uh, Leonardo da Vinci. So a Renaissance man is a person who is not just a master of one craft, but a master of many, uh, if not all. And I cannot think of someone who embodies this more than uh, Dr. Mohamed Al-Banna. He is a consultant cardiac surgeon at Jabal Hospital here in Kuwait. He has trained at the University of Leeds, uh, University of Toronto as well. And very interestingly, uh, he has a special interest in robotic surgery. So we're going to find out more about the Terminator from him. And uh, outside of me medicine, and this is something I find extremely fascinating, he has recently completed his MBA. Uh, you'll notice one thing that I do like to uh, touch upon in this podcast is uh, business in medicine. So this is going to be super interesting today. We're going to explore everything from robots to uh, business in medicine. Uh, and everything in between. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I have to admit, Anna, I personally didn't know the meaning of a, of a Renaissance uh, man. Oh. Um, if I may add to, to the list huh, mm -hmm. of, uh, of things also, you know, I, I, I'm sure you know I've, I've got this interest in media and social media. And I've, I mean, one thing I'm very proud of is the, the show that I did on YouTube, uh, Dr. Ghuloub, uh, is a show that... Uh, We've had, I think, 52 episodes. Wow. Um, I haven't seen anything similar on YouTube um, and uh, since. And uh, it, it is a chapter in my life that I'm very proud of. It's, uh, it's, it's fun to give back, uh, you know, educate the public. Absolutely. And uh, here at the Doctors Brew, we learn from people like you. Thank you. And uh, your media efforts. And thank I honestly you. thank you for what you're doing to educate people. Thank you. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, that I've seen the positive impact it, it had mm -hmm. and is having on, on people. Many of the patients that uh, that end up having surgery in Kuwait um, tell me that they've gone and seen, even if, I ha if I'm not their surgeon, they mm -hmm. go and they see the episodes to learn about surgery, what the surgery involves and what's happening. So I'm, I'm uh, very happy that this, uh, this uh, work that I've done uh, is having a lasting impact. So is it targeted for the general public, like people who are just curious about it cardiac is, surgery? Yes. Okay. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, English, Arabic? No, it's in Arabic and in it's Arabic. got English subtitles. Okay. So, so on, it's on YouTube. It's on my uh, Instagram page. Mm -hmm. um, but mainly, I would say I direct people to, to YouTube uh, because the, the whole library is there. Uh, perfect. Yeah. So please check out uh, Dr. Elbenna's uh, YouTube and Instagram pages for more on his shows. Uh, and uh, before we dive in, uh, we always like to talk about our coffee today. Yes, <laughs> it's it's good. Yeah. So yeah, tell tell us first. What do you so think? I I mean I have I have to admit. You know, I know mm. uh, many people don't like what I say, but and I'm a Nescafe <laughs> person. Oh no. I'm very I'm very simple when oh. it comes to coffee. Um, the the thing that I look for is the effect. Okay. Just give me the caffeine uh, hit. I don't care about the taste. <laughs> um, many people actually uh, obsess about the taste and the afternote and this and that. And I've, I've, uh, many times I've uh, got myself in trouble talking to uh, uh, coffee enthusiasts and tell them that I 
you know, I don't have a, a thing <laughs> for uh, a specialty coffee, and I don't mind any of the uh, popular chains. Right. Um, but uh, they don't like uh, to hear what I have to say about it. That is the biggest sin committed on the podcast. Since <laughs> 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 which doctor? Someone said they don't drink coffee. Uh, uh, oh yeah, Dr. Hassan Bahbahani. Ah, okay. He says he said I don't drink coffee, and that was the. <laughs> so this I, is the you know what? I used to consume logic. more coffee, but uh, uh, recently I've I've noticed that whenever I finish a cup, that my heart starts racing. And hence, I thought, you know what, maybe I should, I should stop or reduce. But what I did is I actually stopped it completely. Huh? Um, uh, one thing that happens is that my ha- resting heart rate is about 90 to 95 when I'm drinking coffee. Right. And it goes down to 65 to 70 when I completely take out caffeine uh, from, my, from my diet. And um, that's why I've chosen not to drink coffee completely over the past, I think, uh, five, six months. Um, I've not had any palpitations. Um, many of the patients who come to me uh, or used to come to me in, in the clinic come because they feel that their heart is racing. Mm-hmm. The first thing I tell them is take out coffee and tea from your and soft drinks that have uh, caffeine out of your of diet. But it's, it's, not, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens usually is that you're usually out socializing. And you know, when I, you and I want to meet, we'll say, let's meet for coffee, huh? Yeah. So I end up not drinking coffee, and uh, and it's it's usually awkward trying to find you know a substitute. A substitute, yeah. So chamomile tea, you know, non-caffeinated drinks is usually my go-to things, and uh, and they're not the same. They don't taste the same. It doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. But if you want to uh, avoid the racy heart rate, and if if it bothers you a lot, then uh, that's the first-line solution in trying to get rid of these these uh, complaints. The doctor's brew does not endorse the views and opinions of Victor <laughs> Mohammed. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Of course, if you have, if you're, if you're getting symptoms from the coffee, yeah, you should exactly. cut off the coffee. Exactly. Um, but do you like the coffee? I love the coffee. Yes. Great. So it's the coffee is from Earth uh, Roastery. Um, today, actually, I was running late to the studio uh, because I was going to go get some beans. But uh, I remembered that we have uh, these uh, dri- uh, drip coffee bags. Mm. Uh, so it's a way for you to make your coffee quickly from Earth Roastery. Um, we promoted them before on the show. Be sure to check out their online website. You can uh, get these in bulk and you can uh, be able to uh, make your instant drip coffee without having any of the fancy setup. And I, it tastes great. I like the palpitation, so my heart is beating fast. I'm enjoying yeah. it. now. On the podcast, uh, Instagram, we received uh, messages before asking about caffeine and, uh, you know, from a cardio perspective, is it is it bad, is it good? And I actually uh, read of a study that was done in the 80s. I think it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, mm. I think. It, it, that's, that's found a false connection between, uh, I want to say, coffee and cancer. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't s- think I don't. Yeah, no, it I was discredited. Uh, yeah, yeah was, I, I don't think this is yeah. this holds. Uh, so usually, what we say is two hundred to three hundred milligrams per day is, mm-hmm. which usually equates about a couple of cups. Mm-hmm. Um, it is found uh, to be uh, cardioprotective. Really? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It reduces uh, the incidence of heart failure, uh, cardiac death, if you consume uh, coffee. Um, having said that, again, everything in moderation. Moderation. Uh, so long as you don't exceed this 
this number, mm. you should be fine. So um, what do you think about all the energy drinks and what people are doing with, like, let's say, studying, you know, and consuming these large amounts of uh, caffeine to get through studying periods? So I think uh, energy drinks, not, not only do they have caffeine, but they are, have other substances. That's mm. number one. Number two is, again, if you want to have a, a drink, then probably you'll be okay. But what I, I, I notice is that The consumption is way in excess yeah. of what I would recommend. Yeah. Um, and hence, what happens is that you tip yourself into a danger zone. Yeah. And uh, we've, we've seen many, many people come in with atrial fibrillation, which is really? a racy heart rate, an abnormal racy heart rate, uh, because of excessive consumption of caffeinated and, and energy drinks. Mm. Um, that is why probably the best thing to do is to learn time management skills, mm -hmm. study early, be prepared, so that you don't uh, stay up all night studying the night of an exam. Uh, and I've had uh, many uh, people who don't open a book mm -hmm. the day before the exam. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they've, they've managed their time appropriately, they've studied all the relevant material before, and they just take it easy the day before, maybe they flick through a, a few pages, and they go into the exam relaxed. That's what I do. I, I can't. I, I get stressed out cramming. Fantastic. I can't do it. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't recommend cramming, mm. especially if you want to do it for uh, long-term learning. Uh, mm. There's evidence to say that cramming helps you uh, on a short term. Yeah. Uh, but for long-term memory, it you know, doesn't touch it. Do you think that our current medical, um, the way that med school is set up, though, Mm -hmm. uh, promotes people uh, like promotes medical students doctors to be focusing more on short-term learning or long-term because you know for me I, there's a lot of things that I will memorize just for the exam and I, I end up spending a lot of time I know I'm not going to use this again but I focus on it just f to get through an exam look um, so one thing to keep in mind um, that even if you tell me I'm going to become a heart specialist, mm -hmm. why do I need to know about the kidneys? Mm -hmm. I'm going to become a brain specialist. Why should I know about the GI system? Mm -hmm. Please remember that a, a human body is a, a holistic uh, uh, structure. Mm -hmm. And one organ influences the other. Yeah. Um, what you do on the brain will obviously be impacting what happens to, to the whole body. And you have to understand how the whole body functions. That's number one. Number two, in terms of general knowledge, as a physician, and when a patient in the clinic asks you a question, you cannot tell him, you know what, this is something I studied for in the exam and I don't remember it anymore. <laughs> you still have to have some basic knowledge and retain that basic knowledge for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Many of the things and many of the answers I give my, my patients in clinic and, and elsewhere are from uh, my preparation for my final year exam. Mm. So I've managed to retain the knowledge that I gained during that year for 20, 24 years beyond that, uh, that date. Mm. Uh, and that's why it is imperative that not only we focus uh, on our short-term memory, but we focus on long-term memory so that we retain as much knowledge as we can uh, to help us uh, manage and help our patients. because. Mm. A body is not just a heart. A body is made up of, of multiple organs, and, uh, and they all impact each other. Uh, I, I love that. I love 
um, I like how now the the shift in medicine is um, a holistic one. Absolutely. Everything, even on a psychological level, I feel like uh, even the orthopedic surgeons are being more psychologically yes. uh, <laughs> savvy and aware. Yes. Uh, so I think this is a good segue. I want to, and I'm sure all our uh, viewers and the audience wants to know a little bit more about you um, and uh, your story about medicine. How did uh, you, you, you get into this? <laughs> Long story short, mm-hmm. my parents told me, you're smart, go and do medicine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just so that, يعني, I'll give you the But I still remember myself uh, spending hours mm. as a child uh, putting uh, together Lego parts mm. and building different structures. So when I, when I, uh, I had a huge tub mm filled with Lego parts that I used to construct planes, cars, uh, different kinds of structures. Obviously, when I first buy uh, the Lego uh, uh, product, I'd build it the way it's meant to be built. I play with it for a couple of days, and then I tear it apart. Mm. And then it goes into the big tub. Mm. So I would spend days playing with this and coming up with different uh, designs for cars and designs for planes. And and for the longest time, I wanted to become an aerodynamic engineer, someone who's able to design cars, uh, design planes. But obviously, this kind of uh, profession is not relevant in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. We'll never be designing cars, we'll never be designing planes, we'll never be using yeah. aerodynamic engineering anywhere in Kuwait. Yeah. So I realized that that's probably not a, a realistic specialty or a realistic area to go into. And uh, you know, I remember my mother saying, you know what, you're very smart, um, why don't you go and do medicine? How about you go abroad, you'll study medicine. And you know, that idea appealed to me. Mm. Uh, so I've always, d- at least throughout high school, uh, I worked to get the highest GPA that I could. At the time, you know, I graduated with a GPA of 4.0. Uh, I was in a Muqarrarat in Kuwait. Yeah. Oh, in Kuwait. Yeah. Okay. This system no longer exists. Yeah. Um, and then I applied to do medicine in the United Kingdom. In the, uh, in the UK, in so, uh, Leeds? So I ended up going to Leeds, yes. yes. I, uh, at the time, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I had the option of either going to Leeds or Newcastle. Mm. And I thought Leeds is gonna be closer to London mm-hmm. and I'll be spending more time in London. <laughs> Little did I know that the only time I'd be going to London is only to go to Heathrow, catch a plane to come back to Kuwait. Right, yeah because uh, medicine is just so overwhelming. Mm. You know, you're gonna be busy with studying and whatnot, and, uh, and hence you won't have the luxury of time to be traveling to London every weekend, nor did we have the luxury of finances mm. to travel that much. Mm. And at the time, our salary was, I think, 750 pounds, uh, and we had to, 
we finance our living expenses, yeah. rent and whatnot, yeah. and and uh, it's just it wasn't a realistic expectation at the time to be going down to London. And how having did you how did you find med school? Did you like it? So I was just about to say, having said that, mm. um, uh, Leeds at the time was a small uh, city, smallish. Um, it was good to study. Uh, Leeds University was amazing. Mm-hmm. I loved the school. Um, I loved my professors. Um, I loved the the you know school administration. They, they were extremely helpful. Um, there were times when I ran through trouble, uh, and they just brought me in, sat me down. They're like, "Okay, how can we help you?" That's amazing. That was amazing. Mm. Um, so. Uh, I was very happy with my choice. Mm-hmm. I was very happy with the education I got. Um, although at the time we often think that um, what we learn and the school is has not prepared us for life ahead. But you know, once you once you're in, in uh, on the wards and the hospital, you find that you know what what you learned was was pertinent, was useful, mm-hmm. and uh, you can. Um, Use the knowledge that you gain to help to help people. So, if time, you know, if I get the chance to go back, I'd, I'd, I'd do it all over again. The only thing I would I would do differently is maybe learn some more time management skills. More time management. More time management. I'm not a very good time management really? person. Really? Yes. Uh, I've picked up these skills um, at an older age mm. through the advent of uh, YouTube. <laughs> Uh, YouTube is my uh, my university. I'm constantly living on YouTube, trying to learn new things. Um, time management, um, exercise routines, mm. um, finances, um, technology, surgery. Mm. I learn all these things on, on YouTube. What I find fascinating about you mm. is that you're embodying the idea of it's never too late. Uh, I, I totally believe this. It's mm. never too late. One thing that I uh, I learned in in the MBA mm. is that uh, the three stage or three stages life: mm-hmm. student, worker, retiree, mm-hmm. no, no longer stands in the day we live in. What you'll find is that, and let's. Let's look at, for example, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. These guys went through school, mm-hmm. but they didn't go through university. They started working. So, and, and anyone can do the same. They could finish high school. They, you know, through their high school, they'd be learning on YouTube, and they pick up programming, for example. Mm-hmm. And then they go out, and they start working in a company programming apps. Once they're bored... Once they think, once AI comes in and it starts programming for you, you're like, you know what? Programming is not uh, doing it for me. I'm going to go and take a, a leave of absence for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. I'm going to learn something, something new. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to culinary school, and I'm going to learn how to cook. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you go and you start and you become a chef. Mm-hmm. So now this is your second career that you've started. This is the second phase of education that you've gone through. And then you go through another career, let's say 10, 15 years, and then you're like, you know what? This is not doing it for me. I've had enough of cooking and culinary, and I want to combine IT and culinary. I'm going to do something else. 
And then you say, you know what, I'm going to take another break for a year or two. I'm going to learn something new, and I'm going to uh, uh, action these new, uh, uh, this new knowledge into a third career, mm. and a fourth career, and a fifth career. So people born, or kids born now, are expected to live beyond 100. To expect that these children, or these individuals, to go into a single profession and continue in this single profession for 60 years mm -hmm. is just so unrealistic. It's not happening. It's either. not happening. So people are going to mm -hmm. go through different iterations in their life. They're going to go through different phases with different interests and different careers um, uh, that uh, self-learning um, is going to be the staple of, of uh, this life. And uh, to these people, it's never going to be too late. It's they can start a new career at any point in their lives. But do you think this also applies for a career as, as a doctor in medicine? Absolutely. How? So, let's say I've been a doctor now since 99. Mm -hmm. So this is now 23, 24 years. Yeah. Let's say, you know what? And I have to admit, I was telling a friend of mine, there isn't an operation that I haven't done. So now I've, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. Right. So the satisfaction that I will get from doing more operations is less and less and less. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm mastering these operations, mm -hmm. but the challenge, the, 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 what should I say, the dopamine hits that mm -hmm. I get mm -hmm. from doing these operations is, is getting less. Of course, naturally. Naturally, mm -hmm. yes. So I might be at a crossroad where I say, you know what, an opportunity comes up, and I'm told, you know what, why don't you go into hospital management, for example. Mm -hmm. And I might jump on this okay. opportunity and leave medicine and leave surgery altogether only to start a new career in hospital management. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Number two, you could say, you know what, I don't want to do anything related to medicine. I'm going to use the skills that I picked up, the ability to communicate, the ability to lead, the ability to manage people, to, uh, the ability to learn and continually learn and stay up to date to start a completely new career and something totally unrelated. Probably it's best if you stay related. Let's say you're going to do a, a, a health app. Mm -hmm. So you're going to leverage the knowledge in medicine that you've picked up over your first career to uh, jumpstart a second career. You could say, you know what? I've had my, uh, uh, my share in medicine. I'm going to go into law, and I'm going to become a lawyer uh, dealing with the medical negligence, for example. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you'll realize is that many industries actually look for doctors people who have finished their medical degree to lure them into doing something else. Why? Because they know that these guys are smart. Mm. They know that these guys have gone through rigorous educational process. Mm. They know that these people are uh, willing to do the work, mm -hmm. to do hard work, mm -hmm. to achieve a goal. And uh, you're going to just teach them. For example, in finance, in IT, in whatever area, you're going to hire these doctors retrain them, reskill them into doing 
the uh, the skills that you want them to do mm. and then they they start a new career outside of medicine completely i think this is something really important for med school med students to keep in mind and this is what i tell people i'll tell young students mm-hmm. sometimes not everyone who goes through medicine loves medicine mm-hmm. and that is why i tell people medicine could be a good stepping stone towards another career mm-hmm. so you don't have to be a doctor just because you finished medicine you could don't go into pharmaceuticals for example mm-hmm. you'd go into research mm-hmm. you could go into finance you could go into it whatever area you want mm-hmm. you could go into it yes you need to, le- to you need to learn new skills but mm-hmm. even as a doctor once you go through your specialization you are learning new skills yeah. you know what i mean yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah i wasn't born knowing how to do heart surgeries yeah. i wasn't trained to do heart surgeries in medical school mm-hmm. i was trained during my resi- residency and you could treat this new job as a residency mm-hmm. in finance as a residency in it mm-hmm. as a residency in whatever area you want utilize the basic skills that you picked up in medicine maybe you're not going to use the anatomy and physiology in these areas but mm-hmm. you'll use other skills that you picked up and they will help you to propel and excel in this new career. I, I often say and tell my junior doctors that imagine a cleaning man. I have all respect for all occupations, mm-hmm. but people think, you know, that cleaning man is the most simple job. Yeah, hmm? doesn't require training. Doesn't require much training. Mm-hmm. Imagine this cleaning person puts in the hours that a junior doctor puts into his profession mm-hmm. on calls after hours hmm? studying studying this whole uh, 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 time span mm-hmm. put it into cleaning mm-hmm. I bet you this guy will own by the end of these this five or ten years will own a cleaning company mm-hmm. will be a CEO of a cleaning company right. and will be a boss mm-hmm. so uh, Let's not forget that the amount of time we put at work in training and learning is huge. And this same time can be utilized to learn new skills in whatever area we like. I wish I heard this when I was in med school, when I went through crisis, because I've always been a person who, my story wasn't, you know, I've loved medicine my whole life Mm. and all I wanted to do was surgery or, I was into psychology and philosophy. Mm. And then I want, and then how I end psychiatry, hopefully that's how I, my, my road. Yeah. I wish I heard this during med school because for me, I always thought, I was always annoyed by the fact that I felt like in med school, I was like, right, so this is the next, my whole life is planned out for me. I graduate, I specialize, I practice, and that's it. There's no, you know, there's no thrill of starting a business. There's no thrill of, uh, doing a whole new area, a new job that you had no idea how to do before. I wish I heard this when I was a student. There's, there's still time. Mm. Um, I don't think it's ever too late. I told you this before. Um, and that's why when people say, should I study medicine? I mean, even if you're not sure and you're a hard worker, study medicine. Mm. The doors will be open for you afterwards in whatever area you want to go into. Uh, that's that's very motivational. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, for you, when you finished med school, mm-hmm. did you know you wanted to go into your specialty? So um, 
second, third year of med school, uh, we had, you know, I wish I remem remember his name. I tried looking up his name, but we had an excellent cardiovascular physiology lecturer mm -hmm. who made cardiovascular physiology so interesting. Physiology. Physiology. This, this person mm. must be amazing because yes. the one area of physiology that I keep banging my head against the wall yeah, no, <laughs> trying to understand. Fantastic. <laughs> So he introduced me to cardiovascular, the heart, the circulation. Mm. Um, so that was the seed huh? that was planted into the interest in heart and the circulation. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that, uh, that also made me go into the specialty is, you know, I've, I've never settled for easy way out. Mm -hmm. I've always loved the challenge. I've always loved to do the hard things. Mm -hmm. So for example, during middle school and, and high school, you know, I wouldn't settle for get becoming first in the class. I would want to be the first or to get the top marks for everyone in my in the same year as I am. Right. So because in my mind, cardiovascular surgery was the toughest to do, mm -hmm. it became appealing to me. It was a challenge that okay. I wanted to conquer. Mm. Um, and that's why I went, to car I went to heart surgery, because in my mind, this was the toughest. It required a lot of hand skills. Yep. Um, people either live or, live or die. Um, the stakes are extremely high. Extremely. The adrenaline rush is huge, mm. and I loved it. Um, and that's why I went into it. And it, it did, mm. it did deliver. It did deliver on <laughs> adrenaline rush. It did deliver on high stakes. Mm. Um, I, I love it. And when did you specialize exactly? Which year? So I did not waste any time. Mm -hmm. I came even before getting hired by the, in the Ministry of Health, I went to Kim's asking how soon can I leave Kuwait to go and get s and specialize? They right. laughed at me when they heard that I haven't even started working yet. Yeah. So I stayed, I think I stayed for eight months mm -hmm. in Kuwait before leaving again uh, mm -hmm. to Canada to do, my, uh, to do my specialization. Right. And I went to, to Toronto. And one thing I've heard, and uh, tell me how correct or not correct I am here, the field of cardiology in specific, both the medical side and the surgical side, has been kind of extremely the, the landscape has changed. Cardiothoracic surgery now is different to, for example, in the 90s, almost exclusively due to the, the advancements with statins, blood pressure control, and general education of the public, and PCI as well. Okay, so I would agree with the first half of the statement. Mm -hmm. The scope has changed completely, mm -hmm. but it's not because of the meds. Mm -hmm. It is because of the technology. The technology. It is because of the new devices and, and new technology that has been introduced, stents, mm. uh, percutaneous valves mm. or valves that are wire-based that don't require an opening. Um, all these different uh, technologies have uh, changed the horizon, and that's why many people uh, would say that uh, cardiac surgery is a dying field. Oh, really? I would, yeah, I would disagree with this statement. It's mm. not going to be a dying field. Having said that, the risks are going to become higher. 
the patients are going to become sicker. Um, and uh, and uh, the, the first option of treatment is going to be done through wire-based technologies, mm-hmm. stents and percutaneous valves. And if these things fail or if they're not indicated in a, in a particular patient, then they're going to be referred for surgery. So basically, the role of the cardiothoracic surgeon more and more is going to be interfering in the high-risk things, yes. not in the routine. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And is this... Do you, is this a good thing, a good change that's happening, a bad change? What do you think? So, you know, many, many of the surgeons would say that this is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Now, what I tell people is put yourself in the shoes of a patient. Do you think, let's say that this patient is your dad, your mother, mm-hmm. your wife, your brother, and they need something done on their heart. Would you want someone to open their chest and do an operation? Or would you prefer that they go through a small opening, put the valve or the stent that they require, have them stay in the hospital for a day, and then go home fully recovered? It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, mm-hmm. yes? So whatever is good for the patient, at the end of the day, is good. Right. I don't care whether it's good for the doctor or not. Mm-hmm. I don't care whether it's good financially or not. Mm-hmm. But if it's good for the patient, then I say that it's good. And do you think this is going to lower healthcare costs overall? Or oh, is no, 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 no. Healthcare costs are going to shoot up really? because you're going to be using more technology, more gadgets. Gadgets, you know, people don't realize that medicine is a, is a really expensive business. Extremely. And uh, all these new technologies, you know, you've spent millions developing these technologies, trialing them, engineering, whatnot, and then going through human trials. And so, you've, as a company, I have invested huge sums of money. I need to somehow recuperate mm-hmm. this money that I spent. And that's why I'm going to charge an arm and a leg for the device that, uh, that mm-hmm. I'm going to implant in you. And that's why I, I remember back in the day when I was at University of Toronto, we had Professor Magdi Yacoub. Magdi Yacoub is an Egyptian heart surgeon who left Egypt, um, went to uh, the United Kingdom, um, he's probably one of the most famous heart surgeons in the world. Um, he has a foundation that, uh, through which he operates now in Egypt, in mm-hmm. Aswan, I think. And he came as a visiting, visiting professor. And at the time, you know, the, we were, as, as trainees, we were feeling the impact of stents, because stents, especially drug-eluting stents, or stents that are covered with, with medicine to lower the risk of re-stenosis or re-blockage, have been uh, uh, introduced into the market, and we've noticed that they're more successful at opening blockages than the first generation of stents, or the second generation, I should say, because the first generation was the balloons only. And he said, his point was, if you are looking for a job in which you operate on patients and you help people, there are lots and lots of jobs in third world countries in poor countries Mm -hmm. that are looking where there are millions of patients that don't have access to a heart surgeon. So you could go there and help them. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a job that would buy you a Ferrari and make you live in a penthouse, then you are right. There is a paucity of jobs like that because these patients are now being treated by cardiologists. Right. Okay. So if the, ob- the ob- if the objective is to help patients and help people, oh, there's always going to be people to be helped. Mm. 
you know, some poor countries will not be able to afford these expensive technologies, and hence yeah. they're gonna they're gonna continue to rely on surgery and older techniques to help their patients. But if you want to make the big bucks, mm. yes, well, your job is gonna be impacted. This posits uh, an interesting question about uh, social versus private healthcare, and is is it sustainable? Because you know, we want, of course, in medicine, everything is based off cost effectiveness. The quali- quality of life year, uh, years gained per dollar invested into Absolutely. a procedure. So with these new technologies, especially in your, in your field, and uh, we're, we're going to get to uh, robotics in just a second, but all these technologies are more expensive, more expensive. Do you think that it's going to be in the long run still sustainable to maintain social health care even if for a state as rich as Kuwait for example look I, I uh, sustainable or not I still believe in social health care mm-hmm. um, I believe in access to health care for everyone right um, so this is number one now Unfortunately, if you want to have access to everyone, you have to have the doctors to work. Yes. You need to have the nurses to do to look after patients on the wards. You need to have all these people to be involved, and you need the the influence or the the contribution of technology and industry. Yes. To help you advance uh, healthcare and and medicine in general, and all of this um, is expensive. Yep. <laughs> You know, one of the thing, one of my beefs with uh, social medicine is, although I am helping people, taking a lot of risk, um, doing tough things, I don't think I'm rewarded according to the risk that I'm uh, taking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that you know, doctors and healthcare has become commoditized, and hence. Uh, uh, I don't think that people in medicine are rewarded as according to the the effort that they put in. Mm. And what will this do? This will drive people outside of medicine. It's happening right now in the and UK with the uh, junior doctor strike. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so there, there, there has to be a way to cut cost, mm-hmm. to uh, eliminate waste, and at the same time deliver uh, uh, good care to patients. Um, the other thing that is happening also is with, uh, with China getting into uh, um, industry is that they're driving the prices of uh, technology down. So this could be a good A good way is through driving increase or through increased competition mm. in technology and in the industry mm. uh, could help drive the cost down, right. but it's not going to be too low. Mm. And uh, and uh, uh, you know I, I believe that there is a lot of waste that could be um, uh, cut out or shaved in medicine in order to. Um, in order to help uh, to cut the cost down. 
but who who are the people do you think that should be the ones to identify this because i've always argued mm. that one problem at least i've i've noticed in kuwait is i think too much responsibility is put on doctors it's not the doctor's responsibility no, we don't know anything about healthcare management that's a yes, whole degree yes, exactly so healthcare management is one thing number two is incentives mm. so for example sometimes you say waiting lists are long yeah. um, and uh, We don't have enough doctors to do the operations, for example. Mm. If you give a little bit of financial incentive, the doctor would be willing to work after hours. Yeah. And this would cut down on the wait list. That's number one. Number two is that improving quality mm, and working on KPIs, key performance indicators, Uh, and focusing on them, uh, making sure that, you know, medicine, you know, in my mind, uh, many aspects, especially surgery, for example, are like a factory. Mm. Patient comes in, gets a few tests, has the operation, gets some physiotherapy, gets some rehab, gets post-op care, goes home. Mm. So throughout these different phases and different steps, you need to make sure that each tick box is checked mm -hmm. so that no one is slipping through the cracks, mm -hmm. uh, no deficiencies go unnoticed, uh, patient care is streamlined and they don't stay in the hospital for too long. Um, you uh, introduce um, uh, or you give responsibilities to people at different levels in the, in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So if something could be done, for example, I've always said that my place is not in the clinic mm -hmm. as a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Okay, I come, I say hello, and you know, try and answer a couple of questions, mm -hmm. but my people, my team, will answer all your questions and will see you and will prepare you for surgery. Yeah. You need me in the operating room doing the operation. Yes. So please don't waste my time doing clinic, doing this, doing that, because I have a skill that no one else has So I need to utilize the skill. Talking to someone yeah. could be done by anyone. Prescribing mm -hmm. medicine and writing a prescription, mm -hmm. I could have my interns do that. You yeah. know, so, so, there's, so that's why it's, it's really important and really appropriate, uh, important to make sure that different, tax, uh, different tasks are delegated to people according to the responsibility and according to their hierarchy within the system. So if we make sure that top surgeons spend their day in the operating room, junior surgeons learn other skills elsewhere, and hence the system is streamlined. And hence you don't need that many doctors, you compensate these people according to the work and the productivity they, they, that they do, according to the quality of work that they do. You know, I think there's many elements that could be tackled to help streamline, to help uh, cut the costs. I think if, and this is not just a quick thing, I think on a, In, in many healthcare systems, if we just invested a little bit more in management, I remember in the UK, I was really impacted once during uh, psychiatry ward rounds. My consultant was on the phone for, I want to say, 40 minutes with a social worker mm. during ward rounds, mm -hmm. talking about a case. Yes. Had What she was doing had nothing to do with medicine. Yes. That was not her specialty. And that's waste, like yes. you're saying about you I being agree. in clinic. I agree, totally yeah. agree. So this, this con 40 minute conversation should have been delegated to, so yes. to someone else 
that someone else would be talking to the social worker while the consultant is doing his rounds, you know, diagnosing, treating, doing whatever mm. they do best. And now focusing back in on your specialty and your interest, mm. uh, robotics. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your? Uh, so I have to admit, you know, when I said that, uh, uh, you know, there are m- multiple pathways and multiple ways through which we learn, um, and we're in, in in a constant state of learning and acquiring uh, new knowledge. This is a, a prime example. Mm-hmm. I completed my training at University of Toronto. I went to uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, and I did minimal invasive cardiac surgery, and I had not been exposed to robotics. Right. So I came back to Kuwait. I operated. Still, no exposure to robotics. Mm. While at Chest Diseases Hospital, um, the, the management or the department acquired a robot. In Kuwait? In Kuwait. Mm. And the head of department at the time, Dr. Jamal Fadli, told me, you know what? I want you to go and learn robotics. And I'm like, you know what? I cannot be bothered. You know, (laughs) no, not interested, this, that. He's like, you know what? No, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate this from him, pushing me to do Mm -hmm. this. You know, we're we're always averse to change. Mm -hmm. No one likes change. Mm -hmm. We want to keep doing the same things we're doing. We all want to stay in our comfort zone, and no one wants to venture out. So as part of the introduction of the robot, the company is responsible to training people. Mm-hmm. And that's when you know the, I went on uh, a couple of training trips um, to learn how to use the robot. And by robot, uh Forgive my ignorance. Sure. In my head, I'm imagining like a Terminator type person in the it's, operation it's, room. Yeah, no, it's not that. What it is, what is, so it, these, what is these the robot? Are, so this, st- this uh, generation of robots, mm-hmm. th- these are stupid robots. Okay. So basically, um, you're wearing something, a okay. device. So it's like a big joystick. Okay. And you're moving the joystick and the robot is moving according to your movement. Okay, okay. So right. you are moving the robot. The robot has no... Uh, there's no AI. There's no this. AI, yes. Okay. But that's, so I'm assuming, next chapter. Though. Exactly. This mm-hmm. is genera- the next generation. So these stupid robots would do whatever you tell them to do. Mm-hmm. Would, would, would mirror the movements that you move mm-hmm. and that you do outside of the patient body. However, doing them through small holes with very tiny instruments. So the, the, the effect, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. lower risk for patients and more efficient surgery, right? Um, so I would say less morbidity. Less morbidity. Because of smaller incisions um, and uh, smaller damage to the surrounding tissue. Right. There's less chance of bleeding and less uh, requirement for blood transfusion because mm-hmm. of the small incisions and the small cuts. Uh, plus, there is... Uh, a huge advantage in terms of optics. So basically, you're sitting inside this machine with both your eyes uh, looking through uh, two cameras. So mm-hmm. you, it's like a, uh, you get depth of field mm-hmm. through this camera. Mm-hmm. If you're looking with one eye, you don't really get depth of field. That's why we have two eyes right. to, enable, to enable us to get the depth of field. So with this, 
you're able to see better, and mm -hmm. if you can see, then you can do. And that's that's what uh, what the current generation of robots uh, provides. Mm -hmm. So going back to the story, we went on the couple of visits, and then what we did is we brought a proctor, a surgeon, a fully trained robotic surgeon, uh, John Luke Jansen from uh, Belgium, mm -hmm. used to come and uh, train me uh, in particular and trained the whole team mm -hmm. in general on how to do robotic surgery. First operation, he did completely. Second operation, he would tell me this part is easy. Third operation. So the parts got yep. bigger and bigger. As the time passed, you know, I think by the fourth or the fifth operation we were doing, I was doing the whole, the whole case. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the story of robotics. Now, the, the beauty of it is that it enables you to do um, the operation without requiring, without the requirement to open the whole chest yeah, bone. Which is huge. Which is huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, can we do everything that we do through our usual exposure? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. There are only certain things that can be done through the robot, mm -hmm. and that's why not everyone is eligible to robotic surgery. Right. So you have, they have to be seen, they have to be assessed, and mm -hmm. then we can answer the question, can I have my operation done through the robot or not? Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, this is uh, un at this point in time, this is unfortunate. It's very attractive, the idea of kind of robotics and medicine, but on a practical level, uh -huh. from your experience, mm. is it as satisfying? So I'm not talking from the patient's perspective. For you, is it as satisfying? So I would say it is satisfying, mm -hmm. especially when you, you know, I, you, you, we are used to big openings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And then when you finish an operation and you've only made a few dots here and there in the patient's chest, this is really satisfying. Okay. okay. You know what I mean? You know, so yeah. you haven't opened someone up you've done the job that requires uh, uh, to be done, you've helped the patient without but subjecting them to too much morbidity. The other thing that happens is usually they're up and about mm -hmm. by the next day. That's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. So, um, you know, it, it is rewarding, I have to admit. And is it more stressful for me? It is more stressful for me. Really? That's hugely stressful because, you know, with the, with, with the heart, anything can happen mm. and anything can go wrong. And if something goes wrong, you have to be able to remove, push the robot out of the way, <laughs> open the patient up, and wow. kind of connect them to the hot lung machine and hopefully save their life. So for me, it's, mm. it's, it's uh, extremely stressful. It makes sense why you don't like coffee, because I think you get enough of your adrenaline uh, I do get from your job. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I wear the whoop. And you know, sometimes after finishing an operation, yeah. I get an alert on my, on my phone saying that we've detected that your heart rate has been elevated for the past really? three hours. Wow, okay. And the past three hours are the three hours that I've spent in the That's operating right. room operating on a, a tough patient, for example. Right. So um, it, it, I do get enough uh, adrenaline yeah. rush, uh, I have to admit, at work uh, during the day. Now, thinking of things like AI, do you think long-term we're being replaced by robots? Um, eventually, yes, we will be replaced by robots. Mm. Um, in the in the interim, however, in the in the medium term uh, time scale, um, it's going to be a combined effort. 
right. the robot's going to do something or AI is going to do something and you're going to do something else. It's mm-hmm. like an internet search that yeah. now you type in and then you get an answer. With AI, it's going to be live. You know, it's the system is yeah. in your ear, a chip implanted in your yeah. head or whatever. It's giving you suggestions or ideas to help you, to help guide you through the differential diagnosis. Yes. And so how do you feel about this? Hmm? How do you feel? If so it, again, if, yeah. if it reduces the time yeah. required to reach a diagnosis, if it reduces the chance of error and uh, misdiagnosis, if it increases the the uh, the the chance of getting the diagnosis right. Mm-hmm. Again, we go back to the same to the same argument. We have a fiduciary responsibility towards the patient mm-hmm. to look after them yeah. and be their best advocate. Yes. Now we don't care whether this is going to take our job. Yeah. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that the patient gets the best care. Yeah. Yeah. Many s- medical students have replaced, or at least let's say, downgraded the influence of grades. Mm. and your ability to memorize and uh, fo- focus more on your ability to be em- empathetic, your ability to be a human. Mm. Because these schools have realized that all the knowledge is going to be available on a computer or an iPad or a tablet mm. or through AI. That's interesting. And what patients want is the human touch. Yes, absolutely. So AI, so far, is unable to provide a human touch. Mm. Okay, the AI will provide the diagnosis. Maybe you're going to be operating on them, but the doctors, the nurses, the medical team is going to be providing the human touch. And this is what what people will be looking for in the future, I think. And I can imagine that, you know, if I were to go into surgery and let's say something went wrong, I would, for me, to hear, okay, my surgeon comes to me and apologizes, says, this went wrong, this is what I did to to tackle it. Mm. That's more comforting. But if someone comes to me and says, well, we clicked the button on the, the machine, the robot did the surgery, and it messed up. Mm. Well, again, now flip it over and say the robot did a great job, mm-hmm. a job that could not have been done by a human being. What's your argument to that? What's your view to this, to this scenario? I would say, you know what, yeah. that's amazing. I want to be uh, the patient of this robot who does the operation perfectly. Having said that, True. medicine, you know, people are so varied. Disease is not the same. Um, anatomy is varied. Mm. Um, and it's, it's hard, I think, um, to think that we might reach a perfect operation, but maybe an operation or a treatment or a hospital stay with minimal mm. side effects and minimal morbidity. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Idiocracy. No, I haven't. There's, it's, um, it's a dystopian comedy, mm-hmm. kind of like if in the future the world was run by quote-unquote idiots and the basically robots dictated life. And there was a scene where wha- the, there was a guy who goes in and he just, I think, put his finger or something and then the doctor, gave, the doctor robot gave him the diagnosis. Mm. I always think about that if that's our future, but I don't think. I think the human I mean, touch will always need to be there a bit. We're a, I think we're... we're far away from this kind of future mm-hmm. at least not in my I don't think in my lifetime but I might be mistaken but mm. uh, eventually this is this is coming yeah y- eventually you're going to be plugged into a, a device and diagnostics are going to be running in five seconds to tell you that 
you know this thing is not working properly mm-hmm. that thing is not working properly and uh, uh, you know somehow it's going to be you know it's like uh, Star Trek I don't know if you've been if you're a fan of Star Trek they've got this mm-hmm. hologram as a doctor mm-hmm. um, so I, I think we'll be we're, we're heading there um, a little bit scary now moving a bit away from medicine mm. uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, your MBA mm. and uh, this is something I, I, I find extremely, extremely fascinating. Saying it again, it's never too late. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I loved it. Being I, a student again was amazing. Really? <laughs> I loved it. I, I was such a, uh, a nerd. Really? Such a nerd, I have to admit. Okay. So tell us a little bit about this MBA and why, For by the way, for everyone who is listening doesn't know, uh, an MBA stands for uh, Master of Business Administration, yes, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's a, a course. Actually, you tell us what is the course? What so is an MBA? So I'll, I'll I'll start off. So MBA is basically so obviously it's a master's degree, mm-hmm. and the aim of the MBA is to give you or to give the uh, the student or the applicant to the program um, a flavor and the taste of the different components. Um, that uh, are required or needed to run a business. Okay. So during the MBA, you study finance, accounting, marketing, um, leadership, management, uh, operations management, um, all sorts of different uh, core knowledge right. that is required through, uh, through uh, business to run a company, to help run a company, to run a department. And then you're given the opportunity to do electives, mm-hmm. things that you choose according to your interests. Uh, some people focus on finance, you know, depending on their background and where they intend to go. Personally, I focused on management and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I'm not going to become a, a financier. You know, I'm going to hire a finance guy. I'm not going to be an accountant. I'm going to hire an accountant. But if, if there is a skill that is required by me, then it's to be a leader mm-hmm. and to be a manager mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a team. Why did I do the course? Um, I have to admit that um, I was quite content working at the chest diseases hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no interest in becoming a manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was happy being in the operating room throughout the day, 24 hours a day, lock the OR key and throw it out and just keep sending patients to You're me. such a surgeon. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, I got approached by Dr. Salman Subah, um, who was at the time the head of department at mm-hmm. the head department of surgery at Jabir Lahmed Hospital and asked me, you know what, we'd like you to join us and we would like you to start cardiac surgery at Jabir Lahmed. You know, a couple of times he approached me, you know, I wasn't interested but then you know he's Salman is extremely smart he's like you know what why don't you come and visit the hospital mm-hmm. and if you go and visit Jabir hospital it's, uh, it's for the people uh, that are not uh, non-Kuwaitis our audience also we have a few people outside of Kuwait um, Jabir hospital if you compare Jabir hospital to the rest of the hospitals in Kuwait it's kind of like putting let's say uh, a a Toyota Prius next to a Rolls Royce. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a, it's a six-star hotel. Yes. It's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. gorgeous. It's huge. It's gorgeous. 
And, you know, as soon as I had a tour through the hospital, I was like, you know what, where do I sign? When do I start? <laughs> so I ended up going. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that, you know, through his foresight that he started doing is he started hosting heads of departments and surgeons from elsewhere, mm-hmm. international surgeons, top okay. people. He brought them over and they would talk about how to start a hospital, how to start a department, how to start a oncology, uh, you know, a cancer service, mm-hmm. how to start this and that. And, you know, on, on one occasion we had, uh, we had uh, Professor pa- Paris Tekis, from the United Kingdom, come and talk about how to establish a an oncology surgical service. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had an interesting talk. I was it was around the same time as now. I was I was going to the American Association of Thoracic Surgeons. It's mm-hmm. a meeting in the United States that I, I usually go to. And uh, I get on the plane. Who's sitting next to me? This professor. I was like, you know what? Let me pick his brain. Mm-hmm. We're going to be sitting here. He's going back to the UK. I'm flying British Airways to the, to London and then from London to New York. Let me use these five, six hours to pick his brain and, and see what I can get out of it. Mm-hmm. So one question that I had to him is, you know what? I'm at the beginning of my managerial career. I've always been a surgeon. I've always been a clinical person. I've not run a service before. Mm-hmm. What do you suggest I do? Mm-hmm. So the guy says, you know what? I suggest you do an MBA at London Business School. Oh, really? Okay. I've done it 11 years ago or 10 years ago, and I found it extremely useful and valuable, and I suggest you do it. Okay, thank you. You know, we went on talking about other things. I still remember walking down uh, one of the streets in New York City. I get a notification on my Facebook, Facebook Messenger, Mm -hmm. and it's Professor Tekis sending me a link to the MBA program, sending me a link to the school, telling me this is the school that I talked to you about. Mm -hmm. I think you should look into it. And you know what? On my way back, I stopped over in London, and I went and I visited the school. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Let me apply. Yeah. Many things have happened. And it it was like, you know, it was like a sign. Things, you know, my admission and my application process got facilitated and I got accepted into into London Business School. Um, and I'm, I have to say I'm quite thankful right. to, to God um, for uh, this opportunity. Mm. Um, the school, uh, I have to admit, changed my life. Right. The things that I learned, uh, the changes in things that I've done, the way I've, I now deal with my team uh, is completely different to the way I was before. Uh, the knowledge uh, was transformational. And, and I have to admit, you know, I'm a kind of person who assimilates the knowledge and takes it on board wholeheartedly. And I try and, and, uh, and uh, incorporate this new knowledge in my life. Uh, which I've done, mm. alhamdulillah, quite successfully, um, at least in running the department and, and, uh, uh, and uh, running the team that I have. Um, I don't think I'm quite done with uh, incorporating the different aspects of the knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think there's still quite a long way. Yeah. Um, and I look forward to uh, what the future uh, has uh, hidden for me. 
I I feel I feel like it's almost essential if you plan to be a practitioner that also runs business and that includes private practice mm. to have this skill set. So number one, as you know, people think, yes, our prime responsibility and duty is towards the patient. Yes. But you have to have knowledge of the business aspect of medicine mm. in order to facilitate the uh, uh, the care that you provide to your patients. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that this is um, to take away from the care, but rather to facilitate the care that you provide to the patients. You yes. need to know how these companies are thinking. You need to know how management is thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to know how to best um, leverage this knowledge that you've gained um, to provide the care to the patients um, in a uh, cost-effective manner. Yep. Uh, because cost at the end of the day uh, determines everything. It's in the NHS, uh, in the UK, the National Health Service, and the, sorry, not the National Health Service, NICE, the, the people that set out the, the guidelines. guidelines. The number one predictor of a guideline mm. is the cost effectiveness. There we go. So you have to make sure and see whether something is cost effective. Yes. So that's, that's number one. So it's important to facilitate the care that we provide to the patients. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, knowing cost effectiveness, knowing how the business aspect of healthcare runs enables you to influence healthcare policy. Mm. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. So healthcare policy is how care is delivered to everyone, mm-hmm. not to your patient only, but mm-hmm. to everyone in your system, everyone in your country, everyone in your jurisdiction. And if you want to drive things towards the better, then you still need to know about management. You still need to be a leader. You still need to know about the business aspect and you know how, how money operates in healthcare to be able to implement change in healthcare policy. Mm. Now, many people look at industry or companies as the evil. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, corruption, bribery, greed, all these things. Okay, yes, there is a bad side to every uh, profession. Even even medicine. Even medicine. Yes. I mean, psychiatry not long in, ago used to be filled with lobotomies. There we go. Now, I look at industry as partners. Mm. They provide the vehicle through which we provide the care to the patients. Yes. We just spoke about these new gadgets, mm-hmm. these new devices. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're expensive. But tell a patient, we're going to open your chest up. Have you spent a, a week at the hospital, a month reco- recovering, or we're going to have you do a procedure and you go home in a day yeah. and you're back to normal in less than a week? Yeah. Do you mind paying extra money for this? They'd say, yes, we'd yeah. be willing to pay extra money for this technology and this gadget. Yeah. So industry is a, is a major partner mm-hmm. and they shouldn't be looked at, they shouldn't be vilified. We should, be fi- we should be finding ways to work together to yes. provide the best care to our patients. Absolutely. The more technology advances, the more industry uh, provides new gadgets, 
the better the care, the less morbidity we have towards our patients, the happier the patients are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. So again, having knowledge of how industry operates will again provide you with skills and will provide you with knowledge that helps you facilitate care to your patients. Right. Um, so that's why I think it's important um, to learn the business, the business aspect of healthcare. But was it difficult getting an MBA and practicing simultaneously? So uh, I was kind of lucky. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, the practice was less because we were in the middle of COVID. Right, okay. So surgery the wasn't as was busy. Yeah. Surgery wasn't as busy. We were slightly busy, but not as busy, number one. Number two, an MBA is tough, mm. regardless of when you do it. Full-time, part-time, it is a tough endeavor. Yeah. You know, I remember I was sleeping about four hours a night oh. to now in order to put in uh, the hours for work, to put in the hours for studying. Really? Now, I was, I told you, I was a nerd. I want to get A's in spite of the fact that I'm doing a completely different area. Yeah. Uh, I'm studying things that I've never studied before. Uh, and, and still I wasn't happy with my, you know, I'm a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I still demanded so much of myself. Mm-hmm. That plus I took uh, part in, in extracurricular activities curricular activities. I was the academic representative of my class. Oh, really? So anything, any problems with the school, I was the person to go to by my class to take up to and uh, take up with the with the school and mm-hmm. with the management mm-hmm. team. So that took time. I was also, uh, you know, me and a, a couple of students, uh, Suresh Galsasi, Stephanie Webster, we started a society at the school called Faculty. Faculty is obviously a yeah. member of, uh, of, but faculty and then tea. Uh. <laughs> so we would host uh, Zoom uh, sessions or Zoom meetings mm. with members of the faculty, with the professors right. at 5 p.m. while having tea, mm. talking about different uh, areas and different uh, topics that were uh, of interest mm. uh, to the students. Um, so this obviously also took time. Yeah. Preparing these talks, coming up with questions, researching topics. Um, so this also took time. Yes, you know, I guess I'm a, a media person by by nature, and it it uh, it uh, it was something that I enjoyed doing. So, what would you advise to, let's say, a young doctor, medical student? Mm. Because uh, I think th- you're absolutely right with these skills being essential. Mm. But let's say someone wants to go and do an MBA or maybe not even MBA, they want to gain these skills at least at some functional level. Okay, so... What's your advice? So number one, um, get out there. Mm. So imagine you have a, a gym or a membership for a gym that you don't take advantage of. So the membership is there and you never go show up to the gym. Are you going to build muscle? No. The answer is no. So similarly, during the day-to-day, if there are chances to present, go and present. If there are chances to lead a team, lead a team. If there are chances to do some extracurricular work related to your day-to-day work at the hospital, then be involved. Mm. You will eventually get to be known 
by different people. Your face is going to become familiar. You are going to pick up some of these skills, if not a lot of them. Mm. Leadership, time management, yeah. uh, management in general, uh, communication skills, networking, all these skills that are required to be a successful professional in, in, in life. The other thing to keep in mind is there are combined programs. There's MD, MDA, MBA. Oh, really? So you can do an MBA midway through or at the end of your, your, your medical degree, uh-huh. and this would enable you to learn part of the skills. Now, sometimes it's useful to have some experience mm-hmm. to relate to, after which you do the, the MBA. Yes. So that you can say, you know what, I had trouble and difficulty in this scenario and situation. The MBA is going to help me deal with it in this way. Mm-hmm. I've had trouble with dealing with uh, superiors, subordinates, yeah. peers, and the MBA is going to help you deal with them in this way. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a bit of experience is, is useful. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of the day, I, I keep saying it's never too late, mm-hmm. even if you're midway through your career, you can take some time, a chunk of time to do uh, your uh, MBA on a part-time basis. Is there an ideal time, you think? Ideal time? Um, So I would say maybe towards either immediately after your residency. Okay. Or towards the end of your residency, it might be a good good time. You take a couple of years off, from your residency, do the MBA, come back, do a year, year and a half of your residency, do your Royal College or board exams, and then you're set yeah. for life yeah. with all these skills. Uh, well, I, I'm going to factor that in for my life planning. I have to I be honest. I think you should. You know, it doesn't have to be through the residency, but, you know, at some point, either immediately after or uh, uh, or through it, uh, I think it's it, it will be very useful and very beneficial. Mm-hmm. Plus, the other aspect that uh, is, is also important is the network that you make. In an MBA class, I was the only doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surrounded by people in real estate, mm-hmm. banking, finance, oil and gas, engineering, uh, airlines, uh, car manufacturing, you name it. Mm-hmm. Whatever industry, there was someone, uh, there was a representative from that injury, uh, industry. And uh, if you need help from any of these people in any aspect of either your current job or your future jobs, uh, these people are, are going to be there to help you out. So the network that you make and the people that you meet along the way, you know, they're going to be your friends uh, for the rest of your life. They might knock on your door for one day for mm-hmm. a consultation or mm-hmm. for a question. Yep. Or you might knock on their door for mm-hmm. questions, partnership. You might start a business with one of these people. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Yes, exactly. I can personally, I can personally attest to the value of the network because the biggest thing that the doctors were giving me in my life mm. is it expanded my professional network. And I don't also I don't only mean with other doctors, but also um, people working in social media, uh, people working in different forms of media. It's opened me up, and it's been it's it it opens doors for you. Absolutely. And I know it, it it's a snowball. Absolutely. It's a snowball. Yeah. So it's uh, you know we have this uh, the concept of wasta. <laughs> huh? 
So yeah. these guys are going to be your wasta yeah. in whichever industry you 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 need help in. Um, obviously, they'll know you personally. Yeah. They're not going to give it without merit. Yes. You you would have proven yourself as a, a hardworking person. You know, doing an MBA is not an easy easy task. Yeah. And uh, uh, they'd be happy to help you out. They'd be happy maybe even to partner with you mm. in the venture that you're thinking of uh, starting. Uh, well, Victor, thank you so much for opening my eyes. Thank you. Uh, I, I can honestly sit and speak with you for hours and hours and hours because I find you extremely fascinating. I love the work that you're doing. Thank you. Uh, I like that you are a Renaissance doctor. Thank you. And um, for everybody who's listening, please uh, take away from today to be to go out of your comfort zone, keep learning, and uh, be sure to check out uh, Dr. Mohamed Al-Banna's uh, YouTube uh, channel. Uh, remind me of the name of your, your show. So, Dr. Al-Qulub. Uh, Dr. Al-Qulub. And uh, follow him on Instagram. And uh, please like and comment uh, what's it called if uh, any thoughts or ideas you have about this episode. I think this is going to be an extremely eye-opening one for a lot of people. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for, uh, for having me. It was a pleasure uh, talking to you. I hope uh, what we've discussed here is going to be of, of value to, to your audience. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a believer of lifelong learning. You know, if anything, I would say that the theme is it's never too late. Absolutely. I, I, really, you inspired me. And I'm not just saying that just thank to be you. nice. Thank you. Uh, so that's the last sip of coffee t- for the day. A last thank you to our guest. Last sip. <laughs> Maybe we should get a uh, guest to do that more. <laughs> that's, I like that. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thanks again. Habibi, thank awesome. you so much. Perfect. Hope you all enjoyed this episode of The Doctor's Brew. New episodes to listen to with a cup of coffee coming your way every Sunday on YouTube and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Instagram for all the latest updates. See you next time.